On today's episode of Guess What I Learned Today, we had Nathan Hurst from Archon Forensic Engineers. Great interview. He was provided so much information. Really fun guy, too. You can tell that he's he really likes his job. So, guys, sit back, relax, enjoy this podcast. You're going to love it. And uh, reach out to Nathan if you have any uh, material questions. All right, it's Terry Doherty from the uh, WP Radio, and I'm on with Nathan Hurst from Archon Forensic Engineers, and uh, we're on today's podcast of Guess What I Learned Today. And uh, Nathan, first of all, first and foremost, thanks for being on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Always appreciate it. Yeah. um, So Nathan, for those people that don't know you or don't know what you do, can maybe we can talk, first of all, a little bit about your background, your education, and uh, and what you do at Archon. Sure thing. Uh, So I'm a U of T guy, U of T grad. Nice. Um, I did my undergrad there, um, specifically in the materials science and engineering department. Um, so there I kind of had a focus on, you know, the, the small level stuff and how it relates to kind of larger problems that we have that we face. Um, specifically, I also uh, did the uh, forensic engineering certificate. Um, so that's something that was kind of new at the time when I was in school. Um it focused mainly, as you would imagine, on the various aspects of forensic engineering as a science and as, and as, a, as an industry. Um, so that ranged from anything from collision reconstruction to material, uh, material failures to fire investigations. And I feel like all of those, uh, the, the two of those things really have, have set me up well uh, to have a job and to have a, a career in forensics. So which one did you like best? What was that? What, which one did you like best? Did you like doing with oh. fires, or what did you like doing with best? Well, because I was a materials guy, uh, I found kind of my natural inclination was to go with that. Um, to this day, it's still what I mostly work in. Um, I'll dabble a little bit um, if other groups need help or if they need a, a bit of a materials perspective on things. Um, personally, I really enjoy doing things relating to, uh, to material failure, whether that be, uh, you know, your, your everyday plumbing and piping issues or kind of going higher level to equipment breakdown as well. Um, I can get a, a little taste of it all. So I see you do sprinkler and fire protection as well, right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, a, a good bulk of my, uh, my work comes from that. Um, I find myself doing a lot of, uh, of sprinkler files. I don't want to say I've been pigeonholed, but I, I think I'm the guy that people will, will kind of refer, uh, refer to uh, within the company at least. Um, so I tend to get a lot of those sprinkler head files. That's not a bad thing. I mean, there's always a sprinkler head going off for one reason or another. And, uh, I mean, they cause a lot of damage when they do go. So, um, yeah, 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 they sure do. (laughs) Nobody ever knows where the shutoff is. That's the crazy thing. I can, you know, I'm like, so why did this run for three hours? And they're like, well, we couldn't find the shutoff. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that'll take, that'll take a claim up from, you know, uh, a couple thousand to uh, get into the tens and hundreds pretty quickly uh, yeah. when, when that problem comes up. Yeah, it's. I'm always amazed that how much damage, it's kind of like peripheral damage from the sprinkler and fire protection or even the firefighting aspect of things. That's another whole story. But, uh, you know, um, the, just the amount of damage that gets caused from that kind of stuff, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unfortunately just a, a product of how important these systems are. 
Um, obviously, it, it's pretty awful when, when one of them does fail prematurely and you get a, a water-related loss. But I think most people at the end of the day would rather be having that situation on their hands than a fully burnt down building or, or other things Oh, for sure. Uh, caused by a fire. So it's kind of, you know, one of the things you got to just deal with, the ugly truth of it. So, um, you, in, and again, I'm just reading through your bio and it says you deal with product relating or product failure relating to personal injury. Do you want to just kind of touch on that as well? Sure. So those ones are always interesting. Um, depending on what kind of product it is, uh, there can be a whole lot of information already out there, or you can be looking at it and you're one of the first people to, to kind of come across it, uh, at least in that specific specific way. Um, for example, some things that I've done have been, you know, your typical ladder failures, um, trying to determine if something was caused because of an issue that happened during manufacturing, or was it just as simple as the user uh, maybe misusing it or not fully understanding uh, the correct way to use it. Um, so just kind of interpreting that and determining uh, cause in that sense is always interesting. Um, it's it's not great that, of course, you're having to deal with uh, personal injury and, you know, God forbid sometimes, you know, uh, when people pass from things like this, but just another part of the job. Um, and you try to find the, the best answer in the best way that you can. And, and I always feel satisfaction from providing a, an answer to someone on that end. So I find it interesting that product failure always gets associated with ladder failure. Um, I've done this podcast for a few years now, and every time I talk to an engineer, they're like, yep, so personal injury and product failure, yep, let me tell you about ladders. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, do I, we I just make every... really bad ladders in Canada? <laughs> I don't know if that's what it is. Um, but yeah, you're right. For For one reason or another, they do seem to be pretty prevalent in that in that part of our work. Um, it could just be that there's a whole lot of people who use them. I think pretty much everyone's got one in their home. Um, you know, contractors using them all the time, uh, industries using them all the time. Um, and they are a pretty abused piece of machinery, I would say. And they often get misused. Um, one of the things that you learn um, during your work at heights training is that a ladder is often not the best way to get up to a high place. It's, it's a lot safer to, to take other routes whether that be like a, a boom lift or something like that. Um, so often what happens is that a ladder is just the best thing available. Uh, and then when it's used in the wrong or uh, misused a little bit, um, it can it can lead to, to issues. Yeah, I think back to my earlier days putting Christmas tree lights up for my parents at their house, and I would be on the ladder just kind of hopping it along. And I'm like thinking back now going, man, if now me could only look at then me, and realize exactly. that what I was doing with that ladder just didn't make any sense. And you're not the only sense. one. Oh, you're I know. You're not the only one at all. I mean, it happened so much that they specifically put clauses in it, uh, in the standards, talking about how you're not supposed to use it. And manufacturers have learned that, so they've started putting it in their instructions as well. So it's something that people are aware of, but uh, you don't see it quite as much unless you're, you're dealing with the failures every day. Yeah, and then now they've got these little feet caps on them, on the ladders as well the plastic yep. caps. And I mean, I, I I mean, I don't see too many wooden ladders anymore, but I remember the days of wooden ladders as well. And they were, so, I've seen some that have been so abused and you're like, you're going to climb that or you climbed that. No wonder you got hurt. Yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. 
So you do more than just that, though. So let's talk about uh, your bread and butter. So I, which would be plumbing failures, I guess, or equipment failures relating to plumbing, or where where would you yeah, be? So where would you spend if you had to say where I spend most of my days? Where am I spending most of my days? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I'd say for the most part, I'm dealing with things related to water. So whether that be transporting water, um, using water in some sort of uh, HVAC process or some sort of industrial process. Obviously, water is a fantastic thing that we all need for, for many reasons, but when it gets loose and when there's an escape uh, into a place where it's not supposed to be, it can cause some havoc, as pretty much everyone in the insurance industry knows. Um, so for me, it's anything from supply lines to valves to fire protection equipment like sprinkler heads. Um, a, a large amount of my work comes from that. And for that, either I would be uh, on a site where something is still installed in situ and getting a chance to look at it, which is always ideal, or maybe it's being sent to me and I kind of get it out of context and I have to do my best to just uh, look at it independently and, and come up with uh with some reasons for its failure. And do you still see people installing stuff that isn't in, meant to be installed for its purpose? So, you know, the piping that's meant to have the water, I forget what the three things are on it. There's a water something oil. Um, it's stamped right on the, the metal itself that it's 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 good to be used for that. Uh, and people right. s- still don't, you know, use those actual parts they use, you know, um, parts that just aren't for it. Are you finding that more and more, or is that, or is that kind of going by the wayside these days? It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell how that's trending right now, um, but I do absolutely see it, um, and it's kind of two-part. I see sometimes, like you're saying, it's just a, a straight-up uh, component that isn't meant to be used in a certain application, and someone does, either doesn't know or doesn't care, and they put it in, and lo and behold, months or weeks later, uh, it lets go and, and there's an issue. Uh, the other thing that we see is a lot of the times with supply lines, actually, uh, what we find is the CSA stamps um, and other, you know, uh, standard committees, um, they're uh, under the OBC, you, you're supposed to have all of your uh, material stamped with that, with that sign off. Um, and it causes a real headache both for myself and for adjusters and examiners in the field. Um, when we've got a part and we're able to identify what's wrong with it, and we can write this nice report about what's wrong with it, and then uh, there's no identifying marking. Um, so there's no way to go back to whichever manufacturer put it, uh, had produced it, um, and it can sometimes lead to a kind of drying up. Um, so... It's one of those things where uh, contractors are supposed to be using uh, stamped and approved parts, but once they're in and they cause an issue, uh, there's no way to retroactively kind of figure out who made it. Um, so I'd say that that's probably one of our biggest uh, hurdles right now. So you're, is that the offshore parts that you know, you're getting from China and Taiwan and stuff like that, the parts that just are coming in kind of uh, under the radar? If, yeah, you know. it, it can be. Um, of course, it's kind of hard to tell where they are from, but I do know in a lot of cases they do tend to be, you know, produced outside of Canada. Um, and either they don't have any stamps on them at all, or they've got a stamp, um, which is fraudulent, and there's oh. no manufacturer on it. 
Oh, so, interesting. So it's like somebody CSA stamped it, but it was done not by CSA? Or maybe there's some other kind of stamp on it um, that oh. somebody, just with a glance, might take it as that. Um, mm. I've seen that a couple times. Um, but really, when you have no way to go back to the manufacturer, that eliminates that as a possibility for subrogation um, or makes it extremely hard in some cases. Yeah, um, I'm sure the guy that installed it five or ten years ago doesn't remember if he bought it at Rona or if he bought it at you exactly. know, where. And, and I'm not saying Rona's selling, you know, deficient parts. So don't take that wrong, listening world. I'm just stating a company. So it could be any ABC Plumbing Supply. Hopefully, yep. there's nobody named ABC Plumbing Supply. <laughs> I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is, but just uh, (laughs) that's what I'm just trying to say generically that they could have bought it at any plumbing store or whatever, and uh, and they're not going to remember, you know, a a T part, right? You know, like a little T pipe down the road. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, these guys are out there putting putting parts in every single day. They're not going to have that sort of memory about it. Um, And and even when you sometimes have to ask the insured themselves. They'll have to go on, you know, uh, kind of a goose hunt, a wild goose hunt for um, for receipts and that sort of thing, track down the paperwork. Uh, it just makes it a bit of a headache. So I think that's probably the biggest issue that I've been noticing recently uh, has just been trying to uh, substantiate the paper trail to make things easier on the insurance side of things. Now, let's talk about material failure analysis and fractography. I don't know what fractography is. So. Okay, so this is a big, uh, it's the bread and butter, I guess, of a lot of what we do. Okay. Um, essentially, what that's saying is that when something breaks, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, when you've got, for example, a reverse osmosis filter. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of those, you know, uh, purifying filters that you often find under people's sinks. Um, they've got these uh, replaceable cartridges uh, with the filter media inside. And it just keeps your water clean and fresh. Um, What we find is that when they fail, um, and this is the same for any component, really, when you look at the portion that has come apart, so the actual fracture, if you look at those, we call them the mating fracture surfaces, that can actually tell you a lot about the conditions under which it broke. Um, So you can tell things um, depending on... uh, how nicely it's been preserved, of course. Yep. You can often you can often tell things like um, the strain rate. So you can tell whether it was a very long-term failure that happened over the course of weeks and months, or uh, conversely, it could be something that happened in a split second, and it's uh, a very high force uh, action. Um, so being able to contextualize what happened uh, with a fracture. It's huge in being able to uh, identify uh, the actual timeline that happened up to up to its failure. Um, so there's there's different uh, physical characteristics you can look at that will that will tell you certain things about the fracture, um, and that is one of the biggest tools that we use uh, in determining cause. So it's basically the photography of the fracture itself. Exactly. So we'll, we'll first start, usually it'll be like a visual examination, just get our bearing, try to tell if there's anything off the bat that, uh, that looks obvious. Um, sometimes you can look at it and you know right away what it is. Other times it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, and then you kind of just uh, you zoom in from there. So you go from a visual with your naked eye 
then maybe you'll look at it under a microscope or a stereoscope, uh, and then maybe you'll get something really high magnification on it, or even throw it under what's a, an SEM, which is a scanning electron microscope. Um, so there's various tools you can use to get uh, higher resolution, uh, more information out of your fracture, and depending on how complicated it is, uh, you can use you know just one or you can use all of them. So, Nathan, are you really able to pinpoint down to confirm, like, hey, this was a sudden impact? So, say it was an oil filter on a um, heating appliance that's outside, and are you able to say that, listen, this looks like, you know, it was unprotected and snow load came down or ice came down and literally hit the filter and broke the filter off at the, at the actual thread? Like, is, are you able to get down to that? finite of a point in yeah a lot of the time uh we do our best of course to be as specific as we can but we try to stay uh within the 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 amount of information that we've got so of course we're never going to write um that it's a hundred percent one thing or the other unless something uh maybe a video of it happening in which case it wouldn't be very useful to have us on the job um so there's always intervals of confidence that we've got and we try to, to stay within those. Um, that said, uh, it's kind of a range. You can you can have something that's extremely obvious, where I would almost bet my life that it's one thing versus another. And there's other times where it's a little bit more confusing, and uh, there's various factors at play. And of course, it gets really confusing when it's not just one factor that's causing a failure, but it's a combination of, of many. And I know, especially in insurance, a lot of what we see is kind of a perfect storm. Uh, of, of different factors at play, because engineering is so focuses on on redundancies, uh, especially with with things that are uh, when they fail are particularly catastrophic. Uh, oftentimes, when they do fail, it's not just because one thing's gone wrong; it's because you know maybe three or four things have gone wrong. Um, but to answer your question, I would say, yeah, a lot of the time we can uh, look at a failure and say it's almost certain that this is, for example an overload failure, where there's a lot of energy, a lot of force being applied. Uh, or in another case, we could say, well, I'm almost sure that this is corrosion-related failure um, based on various signs that we see uh, when we take a look at things. Hmm. That's interesting. And again, that's all through photography or just, you know, visual inspection. You can actually see the rust, the corrosion, the wear through, those kind of things. Right. So that's one of our... Like I said, one of our biggest tools is analyzing fracture surfaces. Um, sometimes things fail without fracture surfaces or they're lost. For example, um, sprinkler heads, uh, when they deploy, oftentimes uh, just by virtue of the plug being ejected and those parts smashing on the ground and then being swept down uh, the drain, uh, there's no real opportunity for us to look at them. So we kind of have to build up on things circumstantially. Um, ideally, of course, we'd have every single piece of everything that failed and be able to put it together like a puzzle, but in the field, it's not always that way. Well, let's talk about sprinklers because I always find them fascinating. So you've got dry, wet, and then a combination of both, right? So the dry versus wet is more to do with the system itself um, and the application that the sprinkler will be operating in. Um, Wet systems are your more typical um system that you're probably used to seeing um the one in 
for example, uh, a residence or a condominium is likely going to be wet, um, mm -hmm. whereas dry would be used in applications where there is an opportunity for freezing. So maybe something that's partially outdoors, uh, like a lobby, uh, maybe a mechanical room that has the opportunity to get, uh, to get quite cold. Um, that's when you would plan ahead and make it uh, a dry system. Um, but beyond that, when you actually look at the sprinkler heads themselves, and I'm actually in the room I'm in, I'm looking right at one. Um, <laughs> the, the, the two main types are uh, frangible bulb and fusible link. And that's just a fancy way of saying one of them is it looks just like a, a glass bulb with usually a red liquid inside of it. Yep. And the other one is just a little piece of metal. Um, and those are just the ways that the sprinkler is able to sense the local temperature, activate if necessary, and otherwise they'll just stay put as it is. So is there something actually in it that changes? So let's talk about the first one you said. One was a fusible link and the other one was? Frangible bulb. So frangible bulb, um, when most people think of a sprinkler, I think that's what they think of. Uh, you've got the head, which has a deflector. So that's going to be uh, diverting the flow of water across the room, distributing it in a way that's going to combat the fire most effectively. And then you've actually got your bulb inside. And the way that works is that there is a carefully calibrated liquid inside, which responds to heat by expanding, just like anything else does, or most things do, I should say. Um, and when it does expand, that breaks the bulb, which then releases the plug, and it's able to, to operate. Um, so that's the way the frangible bulb ones work. Um, fusible link, on the other hand, it's usually a carefully uh, composed um, alloy or some sort of solder, which at a very specific temperature goes from a solid to a liquid, which does the same thing, releases the plug, allows the flow of water out. Interesting. I never knew uh, what the differences were or why they were or what they did to actually release the, the water. So that's interesting. Now, the dry system, they would have the same type of sprinkler heads in it regardless of whether it was um, had water in it or not? Yeah, typically they would. Um, the difference between the wet and the dry system is that the uh, it's exactly as it sounds. Dry has a pressurized air inside of the pipes, um, whereas wet just has the water. So for a wet system, as soon as it's activated, the water is right there. It's going to uh, flow out immediately. Uh, whereas for dry, um, the, the air is going to escape first, and then water will be entering the dry parts and eventually flowing out. How long does that normally take? There's not a massive delay, right? I don't believe it's massive. I, I don't know if I could put a number on it for oh, you, okay. but I, I know it's not it's not super long. Um, hmm. At least uh, I, I know that when it comes to life protection equipment, they, they want it to be pretty reactive. So I imagine it's not more than a couple seconds. Okay. Well, let's talk about pressure vessel failures. Uh, I mean, that's also something that you uh, focus on as well. I do some pressure. Uh, not a whole lot, though. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm trying to dip my toes into that. Okay. Can you talk about it a little bit so people know what it is? And I mean, so what I find is um, adjusters, lawyers are like, um, they may have a claim, but they may not know what to call it, right? So uh, I would have never thought about, 
you know, the two different types of sprinkler heads. I wouldn't have been able to describe it to you. I would have just said, this guy had a sprinkler fire or a sprinkler failure. I need you to go look at it. And then you may go, what type of sprinkler? And I would go, I have no idea. Same with pressure vessels, right? So I might be able to take a photo and send it to you so you'll know what it was, but I wouldn't have known. Um, Same with pressure vessel, uh, pressure vessels as well. I mean, I I think um, most adjusters after a few years will have handled a pressure vessel claim. Yeah. um, So I I also know, I I see what you're saying with the, uh, I guess, misdiagnosis of of things at the field. Um, And, of course, uh, when you've got someone, uh, maybe let's say a property manager, someone who's a, a non-technical entity, um, they'll often say, oh, we've got an HVAC failure or we've got a yeah. water failure, um, and it'll be very nonspecific. And yeah. it's kind of up to the engineer and in a, in a certain way, the adjuster as well, to be able to kind of narrow down the focus. Um, and there have been a couple times where I've gone to a site uh, and I had in my head a certain idea of what it was going to be. And then I get there and all of a sudden it's something completely different. And you just have to be prepared for that. You have to go in with a pretty open mind. Uh, don't narrow your focus down too much uh, before you have the full picture. Um, for example, I get claims where it'll be listed as an HVAC failure. And I go there to find out that it's not HVAC at all. It's just uh, it's a supply line for a dishwasher or something like that. Um, <laughs> And I'm sure it's the same with pressure vessels, even though I haven't done a whole lot of work with them. I'm sure it's the exact same story with that. So do you want to give an example of a pressure vessel failure that you've actually maybe not have been a part of, but or been talked about or just, you know, you at Archon? Um, I don't know that I've actually done one uh, in recent memory. Um, but a lot of the times... Um, it'll be something to do with, um, for example, uh, storage tanks, um, things like that. Um, I, I don't know if I can give you a specific example, but, uh, that's, that's just one, uh, where you might see something where there's either in a residential setting or an industrial setting, you've got, um, either fuels being stored, um, and over time, uh, whether it be from something like corrosion yeah, I was or an impact or a weld, something goes wrong. Uh, and of course, those are pretty, pretty catastrophic when they do go. Yeah, I was just going to think about an oil spill. That's what, to me, that's, you know, your, your typical oil spill on country settings, right? Those types yeah, of things, yeah. they oh. go, they go. Uh, I felt like when I moved out to the eastern Ontario, that's all I did was handle oil spills. It seemed like it was an ongoing thing. I think you just, everybody expected to have an oil spill at some point. Yeah. Yeah. No, th- those are ones, especially in remote areas. Um, well, I should be careful. I shouldn't say remote, uh, as in really out in the duties, but places away from urban centers, obviously you need a way to heat your home. Um, and sometimes what that comes down to is having, uh, a fuel oil tank, uh, beside your house or maybe beside your, your garage. Um, and when those things either leak or fail catastrophically um, and that oil penetrates the ground, that's what really drives up the cost of a claim. Because, of course, uh, the, the mitigation for that is, is, is so intense. The, the amount of uh, environmental work and assessment that goes into it um, really makes those tough financially. 
Um, so it's important to get good answers uh, when it comes to fuel oil specifically. Yeah, or in the basement. That's the other one where it's in their basement. They've got their uh, oil, heating oil in their basement, and uh, no one's taken a look at their system in years, even though it's meant to be done on a yearly basis. And, uh, you know, these things happen. I, yeah, I and I think especially <laughs> what, one thing that I, I think I've noticed about fuel oil, um, this is just an example, um, is it comes down to a lot of the time with maintenance, inspection um, it comes down to interpretation of code sometimes um, so someone might be told uh, during every inspection you need to uh, check the water level you need to check for moisture mm-hmm. you need to scrape the bottom there's all sorts of things that people are supposed to do but not everyone necessarily does or um, there's things that are considered best practice but of course not everybody is uh is willing to do it. So I think a lot of the, what, what it comes down to sometimes is identifying the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law and determining, I guess, how, how people in the field are really doing things versus what they're supposed to be doing. Because sometimes it's the same, but sometimes uh, there, there's a big difference between those two things. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying exactly because they've got that, uh, there's the code that's dealing with um, OTB, right, Ontario burner technicians, OBT, and they have a certain requirement that they're meant to do when they're doing their their cleanings and their inspections and stuff. And I, I, I learned a lot actually about, more than I wanted to actually about uh, oil tanks <laughs> in, uh, in my time dealing with those types of claims on a liability basis. So it was interesting. Now, um, not, you know, looking at your pipes and your plumbing and your material fractures or failures, um, what's the most common? I, I know you said it, a lot of it's residential. Is it in improper installation, do you find? Or is it more um, just wear and tear or just, um, yeah, just kind of tell me, Is it? what do you think on that? Is it is a lot of improper installation or just wear and tear? You're finding like older homes where stuff's just uh, that's a tough breaking one. down. Um, I find that a lot of the adjusters that I'm working with are, are savvy enough usually to be able to tell off the bat um, uh, whether or not, whether something is more likely to be related to just, you know, being an old, decrepit thing, old, old part versus something where um, there's been an actual incident that's happened that's caused a failure. Um, of course, this comes up a lot with equipment breakdown uh, policies because oftentimes what triggers the policy is going to be a specific event that causes a failure. There's a broken part you can point towards. Um, there's a certain narrative that goes along with that versus um, some policies that, that won't cover general wear and tear. Um, so being able to identify between the two and uh, make that distinction is important for me. Um, but I find that a lot of the adjusters are kind of able to tell, you know what, this part is 25 plus years old. Um, it's in a part of the house that was never touched. It's probably just going to come down to just being, you know, some old piece and there's not really going to be any subrogation potential on it. And they're savvy enough to not push that onto an engineer, or maybe they'll give me a quick call and I'll be able to uh, give them some advice there. Um, 
But the parts that I do get where they are failed, and specifically the ones where it's a premature kind of failure where it'll fail within weeks, months of install, typically those will either come back to an installation issue or they'll come back to a, uh, an issue with the actual product itself. Um, so some kind of uh, usual suspects, I'll say, uh, from my line of work will be things like uh, toilet supply lines. Uh, I'll see toilet supply lines fail on basically a weekly basis. Um, sprinkler heads I'll see all the time, um, whether it's because they're near a, a heat source or because they're in a place where there's an opportunity for them to be impacted or because they're just uh, a model that has uh, a trend of failure, then in all those cases, um, there'll be a specific reason that I'll, that I'll be looking for for that failure. Those are the two that come up a lot. I also see things, uh, I see some uh, text line failures for like domestic hot water. Um, just a couple that I've seen in the last few weeks have been text lines installed near hot uh, hot items. So things like uh, electrical equipment, um, space heaters, that sort of thing. And the combination of heat and the pressure inside of them leads to a rupture. And those can be very, very expensive. Well, interesting. So it's not that it's even touching. It's just it's close in proximity enough that it's actually, it's causing it to melt or, you know, disform or disfigure and then let go. Right. So often what we see is that the material will soften, um, which allows the service pressure, which is usually anywhere from, you know, 50 to 80 PSI, probably less. Huh. Um, it allows that to actually work its way to, to balloon the, the the tube until it gets to a, an unsustainable point, at which point there's a there's a fisheye kind of of, uh, of rupture that forms, and then the water all comes out. Well, that's interesting. For all you property guys, if you're seeing that, and this is in new builds or is this in old stuff? This is new stuff. So it can be it can be in new builds. Um, Typically, uh, I'm actually seeing those in places that are under construction uh, still. Um, just because you've got a whole lot of equipment around, people still need to plumb in uh, hot water and cold water. Actually, funnily enough, uh, well, funny depending on who you ask, I guess, um, because of COVID, I've actually seen a wave of claims relating to hand wash stations um, where the the contractors who are on site need a place to, to hygienically clean their hands, but to be in line with the mandates that are there. Uh, but because it's something that no one's really ever had to do before, uh, they're kind of, they can sometimes be put in a little bit haphazardly. And what I found in multiple sites is actually cases where this hand wash station has been put in in a way that someone hasn't really thought of either a freeze up or like I said, some sort of heat problem. And then, it kind of houses the entire site. Um, so that's just a, a little weird thing that's a, a product of COVID. Wow, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Just kind of a side thing, unrelated to COVID, but COVID. Yeah, exactly. Wow, oh, that's interesting. I'm sure we're going to find other sorts of things that kind of are related as we go along from COVID. That you know. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that we'll, we'll see the ripple effect for, for a while to come. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today i really appreciate it now if people are going to be able to find you how do they do it nathan uh, well they can just uh, get to me at my email is probably the easiest way 
but uh, I'm on the Archon site. I know I've got a little bio written up on there if yeah. they want to check that out. Um, but my email, if they want to, or my phone, I guess they want to get in touch. Um, it's all it's all through the Archon site, um, nathan.hurst.archonforensics.com. Um, and I'm, I'm always available to take questions and, and to chat. Well, that's good. So if people want to reach out to you, ask you some questions about mechanical failures or, you know, material failure, I should say, or, or even the plumbing questions, because those come up a lot, right? You'll have an adjuster or a new adjuster, they get um, these claims and they don't know where to turn. So you're good with people reaching out to you, Nathan? Oh, absolutely. Excellent. Okay. And everybody, you guys should know that he uh, does like uh, working in sprinkler stuff. So that's good too. That's right. I'm your, I'm your sprinkler guy. <laughs> He's your sprinkler guy. Not that you're being pigeonholed, but you're the sprinkler guy. That's right. Excellent. I'll take that. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. But before we go, I'm going to ask you five quick questions and uh, totally unrelated to anything to do with Archon or, you know, what you do. First one, what's your favorite thing to eat? Favorite thing to eat? That's a tough one. I've got to go with probably my favorite dish, which is a, a, a cream shrimp linguine that my mom used to make. Okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll, say, I'll say that. Nice. Shout out to mom there. All right. <laughs> favorite book you've read? Favorite book has got to be the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series by Douglas <laughs> Adams. Nice. Uh, probably a lot of people's favorite, but... Yeah, definitely pretty formative for me. Yeah, nice. Uh, favorite drink? Can be anything. Favorite drink? Anything. Ooh. I drink way too much uh, tea, so probably uh, oh. like a black tea. Nice. Uh, but I also enjoy beer. <laughs> okay. Favorite beer then? What's your favorite beer? Are you a, a microbrewery kind of guy or are you like your standard course? Um, I'd say my taste is a little bit rich. Uh, unfortunately for my, for my wallet, but yeah, probably more of a craft, craft beer kind of guy. If anyone's interested in gifts. (laughs) (laughs) Favorite movie. Ooh, that's really tough. Um, I'm going to have to go with a classic here. Probably, uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. Oh, wow. Okay. And favorite place to go on vacation when you were allowed to go on vacation again? Uh, I'm going to say that the, one of the first places I want to go. Uh, when I'm able to, it's probably going to be Antwerp, Belgium. Kind of a weird answer, but uh, I did my my professional experience there at U of T for a year. I worked at Exographics, so I'd love to go back and say hi to everyone there. Oh, that's what that's about, Agra, Agfa, 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 Agfa Graphics. Yeah. So you actually went to Belgium. I did. Yeah, I worked the nine to five for a year. And well, you know, we're kind of at the end of the podcast, but. You worked on inject printers, right? And engines and That's right. substrates. Yeah, I saw something in your bio about that. And I was like, okay, but oh, that's interesting. So you actually went to Belgium. Very, yeah, yeah. It was a fantastic experience. Very cool. Something you'll never forget, I'm sure. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. It was really informative. I learned a lot. Now I can talk about the different types of sprinkler heads when uh, – when people bring them up, I'm going to ask them which kind they, uh, they have. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, I, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. I appreciate your time, and uh, I always appreciate uh, Archon uh, providing this insight to people. Oh, thanks very much, Jerry. Thanks for having me, and I'm glad to provide that info for you.